Because man must not live on bread alone, please open your Bibles to Psalm 3. We must live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, according to Jesus, and Deuteronomy, according to Moses. So let's turn to Psalm 3 now and hear God speak to us this morning. We're going to do Psalm 3 this week, and then in two weeks we'll do Psalm 4, and then we're going to jump into our new series in the Old Testament, but two Psalms here in between series. Psalm 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you or under you, and you can turn to page 472 to Psalm 3. 3 is the big number, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. Hear God's word from Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from his son, Absalom. Lord, and when it's capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. Yahweh, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. Or there is no salvation for him in God, Selah. But, but you, Lord, you, Yahweh, are a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. I cry out to Yahweh, and he answers me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Yahweh. Save me, my God. You strike all that, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. May your blessings be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, this is our prayer, that your word would dwell richly among us, that you would fill us with your spirit, write your word on our heart. Lord, we live by your words. Your words give us life. You cause us to be born again by your word, and now we know that faith comes by the word preached, by the word read, by the word heard, by the word preached. So, Father, do the supernatural, powerful thing that we can't do on our own. Grow us in faith. Grow us in repentance. Grow us in joy. Grow us in confidence. Grow us in boldness. Weaken sin. Soften our hearts. Show us your glory and change us today forever. We need you for this, Father. I need you for this to preach. We all need this from you to hear. So come now and help us. We are desperate for you. In Jesus' name, amen. How do you move forward trusting God in troubled times? Notice not verse 1, it should be verse 1, but verse 0, I guess, of Psalm 3. A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. I wonder if you know this story. This story is in 2 Samuel chapter 15 through chapter 18. It's a story of David and his son Absalom. David had many sons, and one of his sons was Absalom. Absalom was in exile because he um, took vengeance, like a vigilante. He took vengeance on his brother for a rape and killed his brother, and so David sent him away in exile, or he ran away actually in exile, and David left him there. David brought him back, and, and when he did bring him back um, to, to, to Jerusalem, he saw David once and never saw him again, and so Absalom, David's son, started to sit at the city gate of Jerusalem, get dressed, and then he would talk to all the people who are coming to see the king for a, a court ruling on their case. And he would talk bad about the king. Oh, the king doesn't have time for you. You know, if I was king, this is what I would do. And so he did this for four years, talking to people. People would bow down before him because he's the prince. He wouldn't take the bowing. He's like, no, don't bow. I'm, I'm a fellow brother like you. And he would, you know, sh- shake their hands or hug them. And they would felt loved by Absalom. And it says in 2 Samuel 15 that Absalom stole the hearts of the people. And so after four years, Absalom plans a rebellion. He goes to a, 
a place for a feast not too far from Jerusalem with the king's blessing. He gathers people and he tells all messengers throughout the country that when the, when the um, trumpet sounds, I don't remember the, the name of the instrument, but when the trumpet sounds and they hear the horn to everyone to declare Absalom is king. And so Absalom does that. And David finds out from intelligence before the declaration that Absalom is going to declare himself king and all of the nation is following him. So David tells all of his people, get up right now. We need to leave right now. Pack your things, everyone, we're going. And so they leave the palace in Jerusalem and they start walking and hiking away to leave Jerusalem because Absalom's gonna come with an army and they're not ready and they don't have the power to fight against them. So David flees from his son. Imagine being usurped as the king. That's already traumatizing and um, difficult. But when it's your own son who wants to kill you and take your kingdom, that's really heartbreaking. And so David is fleeing. And this psalm is written when he fled from Absalom. As he fled or after he fled, he, he was heartbroken and burdened and discouraged and distraught. And he's, high, he's walking away. It even says that he walked barefoot as he walked up the hill um, across the Kidron Valley, up the hills, and over with as many people as he can take with him. And so this is David's prayer. Now, just like David, who had trouble, was in trouble times, we have troubles and challenges to our faith, don't we? We're, we're in difficult situations. Sure, maybe our child is not trying to kill us and take over our kingdom, like David, but we have difficult situations with family, with friends, with coworkers, not just with people, but difficult situations, our own health. We have difficulties within our own souls. We have difficulties with the situation around us. We live in a broken and cursed world. And we have even difficulties in, in spiritual realms, not only with God, but we can have difficulties with demons, demonic oppression, demonic influence, demonic attacks. We wrestle not only against flesh and blood, or not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual principalities and powers in the heavenly places. And so all of these different pressures can, pre can press in on us, causing us to either procrastinate, give up, or lash out at others. When we feel these challenges, we might say, you know what, I'm just gonna give in to sinful, fleshly solutions. I can't take the pressure anymore. I need to do something else besides leaning into God and trusting God and moving forward in God. And so as we're pressed by these um, pressures and the pain that overwhelms us, we can, we can check out. We can give in. We can give up. The pain is overwhelming. The burden is too heavy on our shoulders. And the trial seems almighty, omnipotent. The good news is that we don't have to give up spiritually. We don't have to give in to sin. We don't have to give up in the pressures that we face. And David did not give up. David here helps us learn how to handle troubles, trials, and situations in our lives the way that he prays here. And so from David's prayer, we get some lessons here in prayer. So the main goal, because this is a psalm, I won't always do this with a psalm, but I'll give you the main goal here in a, in a rhyme, in a couplet. When opposition weighs down on you, pray to God who will see you through. When opposition weighs down on you, pray to God who will see you through. You have opposition in your life. Pray to God who will see you through. And from this psalm, if you notice here in your CSB, there are, the editor has done this. There's three, well, not the editor. There are three words that David wrote, selah. We don't know what selah means. Some people mean, think it means pause and ponder what's going on before you move on or an interlude in between in the music, because these are songs. Others think it means it's a note to raise the volume of the instruments or the singing. We don't know. The bottom line is we don't know what it means. So I could tell you what I guess, but it's just a guess, so it really doesn't matter what I guess, okay? We don't know what it means. But it does, it does so happen in this, in this psalm that it, it has breaks here that are also the breaks of the psalm. So verses one and two, and then there's a break. Verses three and four, and then there's another salah that's a break. And then at the very end, there's a salah. But notice between six and seven in your CSB, there's also a break there. That's an editorial break, not, not one in the original Hebrew. But I think that's the right break, at least in terms of concept. So here you have four stanzas, two verses each. 
And so from this psalm, we get four lessons on prayer, okay? Four lessons on how to pray to God when, when you're weighed down by pressure. So again, the main goal, when opposition weighs down on you, pray to God who will see you through. Four lessons here in prayer. Number one, verses one and two, pray realistically. Pray realistically. Look at verse one. Lord, Yahweh, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me or many who rise up against me. David's foes here have increased during Absalom's rebellion, right? Four years of Absalom standing at the city gate, stealing the hearts of the people, and now you're a king in your palace, and then you realize that the whole nation has turned against you. It's not just your son. It's not just a few conspirators. The whole nation has turned against you. For four years, he has stolen the hearts of the people. Conspirators have been increasing. Even Ahithophel, if you know the story, Ahithophel is one of the advisors of David that when Ahithophel gave advice, it was like hearing advice straight from God. Whenever Ahithophel, he was so wise that whenever he gave advice, they always, kings and leaders always trusted Ahithophel's advice. Ahithophel was one of David's most trusted advisors, and he chose Absalom, not David. David's foes, his enemies, are increasing. Not only that, if you read on in the story in 2 Samuel, when they take over Jerusalem, Ahithophel says to Absalom, Absalom, right now, we just came in, they're on the run, give me 12,000 soldiers right now and I'll kill David and it'll be done. 12,000 soldiers. Ahithophel has 12, I mean, he's asking Absalom for 12,000 soldiers because guess what? Absalom has... 12,000 soldiers right there in Jerusalem at his disposal the, you know, the day or the day after David just fled. That's a lot of enemies, right? That's not one enemy. That's not a few key enemies. Your, your whole nation that you've led is against you. So David says, God, my enemies increase. There are many who attack me. In verse two, many say about me, there is no help for him in God. The word there for help is Yeshua. The English name for Yeshua is what? Joshua, okay? Yeah, Jesus, if you're gonna use the Greek translation, but Yeshua means, uh, uh, that's Joshua, and it means salvation. There is no Yeshua from God for him. There is no salvation for him in God. There's no help for him, no deliverance for him in God. They mock David's faith claim. David says, Yahweh is on my side. And guess what Israel says? Guess what the 12,000 say? Guess what Ahithophel says? And Absalom says, no, David's not, Yahweh's not on your side, David. Yahweh is on our side. There is no salvation for you, David. You know why you're fleeing? Because Yahweh is against you. He's on our side. No salvation for you, David. Not from Yahweh. Not from God. No deliverance. No safety. This is actually the judgment of God on you. That was their claim. They mocked David and his claim to, that God's on his side. Now, it is possible that some who have faith in God are sincerely mistaken. It's possible that David could think he's on God, God's side and he's not, like someone who believes in a false religion, a cult perhaps. Someone could say, oh, I'm on Jesus' side, and Jesus is not on your side. So it's true that David could be mistaken, but here it's not that David's mistaken, it's that these people are actually against God. They're actually mocking David's faith and God's word and promise to David. Now, if you have a Bible, keep your finger here in, second, in, Psalm, in Psalm 3, but turn to the left to 2 Samuel 16, if you would. To the left, you're going to see Chronicles, and keep going back to Kings, and go back before Kings to Samuel. Go to 2 Samuel, or 2 Samuel, chapter 16. All right? 2 Samuel 16, you'll look at verse 7. As David is walking barefoot with his soldiers, he's going up the hill, and Shimei... Shimei curses him. So look at verse seven. Shimei is um, a descendant from the house of Saul, the former king. In verse seven, Shimei said as he cursed, get out, he's talking to David now. So he's mocking David as David's on on the run or fleeing and mourning. Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you wicked man. Yahweh has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you became king. And Yahweh has handed the kingdom over to your son, Absalom. Look, you are in trouble because you're a man of bloodshed. You're a man of bloodshed. Who is Shimei saying that, who's against David? Not just Absalom, but who? 
God, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. He's against you. His favor is not on your side anymore. His face is not shining on you anymore. He's against you because, of, because you're a man of bloodshed. Let's read on just to get a little bit more of the feel of the story. Look at verse 9. Then Abishai, son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and remove his head. That's one way of solving the problem, right? You can tell him to be quiet, or you can take your sword and cut his head off, and that would keep him quiet. Abishai is one of David's greatest warriors and soldiers. What does the king say, though, in reply? Verse 10. The king replied, son of Zariah, do we agree on anything? He curses me this way because, because what? Yahweh told him, curse David. Therefore, who can say, why did you do that? Then David said to Abishai and all his servants, look, my own son, my own flesh and blood intends to take my life. How much more now this Benjaminite, leave him alone and let him curse me. Yahweh has told him to. Perhaps Yahweh will see my affliction and restore goodness to me instead of Shimei's curses today. So David and his men proceeded along the road as Shimei was going along the ridge of the hill opposite him. As Shimei went, he cursed David, threw stones at him, and kicked up dust. Wow. There's the king walking, and this guy is kicking up dust at them, just following them, cursing him, mocking him, kicking up dust, and throwing stones at him. And David is not doing anything in response. Now, I read this to my kids last night. We read all, all four chapters just to get the story. And uh, they were saying, so David was just like getting hit in the head with, with stones? And I, the more I thought about it, I thought, well, David's probably not getting hit with stones. It's probably his men around him. Because <laughs> David is the king and he's being protected by his men. And so as David is there walking with his entourage, um, maybe he's trying to lob stones over to get at, at David. But the men are there trying, just like Secret Service, are there protecting the president or something like that. You have the men. But, the, but Shimei doesn't stop. He follows them and just keeps cursing. And David says, this is from who? From Yahweh. So, so, so Shimei mocks David. David feels this realistic predicament. Or he feels this predic- predicament, this burden. And so go, going back to Psalm 3 now, when you go back to Psalm 3, he says, Yahweh, my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no salvation from him, for him in God. And at least when David is walking and Shimei is mocking, he takes that as this is God's providence. And you know what? It was God's providence. Earlier on, David was told by God in, pun- in regard to David's sin because David committed adultery. You remember that? David committed adultery and he murdered the husband after committing adultery. And really, it was not just adultery. It was practically rape. It was sexual assault. He used his power to coerce a woman to sleep with, a married woman to sleep with him. And he impregnated her and then killed the husband. And God forgave David but he told him that in your own house, there will be great trouble and someone's gonna come there and, and do some of the things that Absalom did. So, so because there was that pr- prophecy of judgment, of discipline, when this happened, David's like, well, this is from who? This is from the Lord, this is from Yahweh because he told me in my sin earlier that this was going to happen. But even though David does that, David somehow, between this Shimei episode and Psalm 3, David moves from, Maybe the Lord has this against me. But remember, he says in, in 2 Samuel, maybe the Lord will have mercy on me. Maybe the Lord will hear and, and, and return. Well, by the time you get to Psalm 3, David is now moving towards confidence. So, and actually, this psalm is a psalm from like prayer and feeling your burden to confidence. So here in this first thing about praying realistically, David says, there are many who attack me. Many say there is no, uh, there is no help for him in God. What we learn from here is that David looks at his problem and he says what the problem is realistically. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties or your cares on God because God cares for you. What we learn from David here is when you have a burden and when you're feeling the pressure that's crushing you, tell God what the pressure is. And don't don't feel like you have to butter it up or, or deny it or ignore it. David prays realistically. So what is burdening you? Pray that to God. Pray honestly, pray realistically, pray specifically. Identify the burden in your life. For David, it's that many have now turned against him. The song, the, the song that you're familiar with goes like this. Have we trials and temptations? 
Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Pray. Pray pray your burdens. Pray honestly. Pray realistically. Pray specifically. Uh, uh, naming the opposition. Because you know what? The opposition is speaking. You might as well speak as well, right? The opposition is speaking lies to discourage us. God's not going to help you. God's not going to save you. Not this time. You know what you did? Do you remember what you did, David? Do you remember what you did, Christian? God's not going to save you. You deserve this. You deserve more than this. You deserve hell. And so, that, so even your mocking is going to take half-truths and misapply it. Doesn't Satan do that often? Take biblical truths, apply it halfway, and twist it to our own destruction? So the opposition speaks lies to discourage us, to distract us, to dominate us, to deny us access and communion, access to God, access to communing with God and enjoying God. So brother, sister, what trial are you facing? Like King David, pray to the Lord. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And notice here, David identifies a trial and he says it out loud. So, so say your trial out loud. What is the trial you're going through? If you've been talking to me lately, it's been um, not only my writing of my dissertation, that's been my trial, but my trial is really internally my own struggle with procrastination and laziness, sinful negligence, and being discouraged about that. So praying about it specifically and identifying it out loud. God, this trial is in my life and it's really bugging me. It's really interrupting my peace with you and with others. Pray specifically, identify it. And notice, David doesn't just pray it out loud. What does he do? We're reading Psalm 3, which means David what? Wrote it. So maybe even write it down. Write down your struggle, journal, write, write the burden out, get it out on paper, and let that lead you towards peace in God, with God. Pray it out loud. For, for the church family, pray with one another. Pray for one another. You know what? Don't just write it down. Share your burden with each other. Say it out loud, because saying it out loud gets it out there for you to think about it in light of who God is as you pray to God. If you're not a Christian, you have burdens too. You have pressures. But realize that your biggest pressure is the fact that you're facing these pressures without God. Actually, God is not even for you. He's against you, because we're all sinners. And as sinners, God is against us. We'll talk more about solutions to that in a second. But I want to say something to children before we move on to the second point. Children, sometimes it seems like you have no one who will listen to you. That's not always true, but sometimes it seems that way, that you have no one to listen to you. God will always hear you, and he'll always listen to you and come to you when you come to him in the name of the Lord Jesus. So children, when you feel alone, when you feel like there's no one to talk to, you can always talk to God. Go to God with your burdens, and go to God honestly. It makes no sense lying to God. God knows the truth anyways, right? The good news is that we can be honest with God because he knows anyways. Might as well just be straightforward with your sin, with your struggle, with your burden. Okay, so pray realistically. When, oppos when opposition weighs down on you, pray to the God who will see you through. Pray realistically. But not only pray realistically. Secondly, pray theologically. Or you could say pray thoughtfully. Pray theologically, pray thoughtfully. What does that mean? Look at verses 3 and 4. So they say, there's no help for him in God. There's no salvation for David in God. And then the, next, the very next word in verse 3 is what? What's the first word? But. They say this, but that's not true. What's the truth? Even though they say there's no salvation for me in God, but you, Lord, you, Yahweh, you are a shield around me. You're my glory, and you're the one who lifts up my head. I cry out to you, Yahweh, and you answer me from your holy mountain. David prays thoughtfully because even though people say what they think God is doing, even though the thoughts that, ram, um, that bounce around in your head say things to you that you think are true, God speaks, doesn't he? God has spoken. God has said things. And so even though you criticize yourself, you're criticized by others, you're discouraged by others, you need to listen to whose, vo whose voice most of all? To God's voice. And you need to pray to God, thoughtfully hearing what he has said. Or I said praying theologically because it's about God, what God, who God is and what God has done and what God has said. 
And notice, I haven't explained this yet, I'll explain it now. What is God's name said at least six times in this passage? What's God's name in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament? Yahweh. And what does the name Yahweh mean? Yahweh was the name given to Moses when Moses was talking to God at the burning bush before he was going to redeem Israel from Egypt. And, and Moses said, what, what's your name? If I need to tell them what your name is, tell them Yahweh has sent you. I am who I am. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when we talk about Yahweh, think of God, the God who is, and the God who keeps his covenant. His covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what was his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? That they will, though they're in a cursed world, and all of humanity is cursed, what's going to happen to Abraham? He will be what? Blessed. And his family will be blessed. And through Abraham's seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God will bless a cursed world through Abraham. That's the promise. Through a great nation to Abraham and then to the world, God would give a blessing. And so Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Yahweh is the God of David. Because not only did Yahweh make a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, later on in David's life, before this, this, um, this civil war, really with Absalom, God promised David, just like I made a great name for Abraham, I'm going to make a great name for you in the Davidic covenant, in 2 Samuel 7. You will have a king who sits on your throne for how long? Forever. There will be a Davidic king, a descendant of David, who will sit on the throne of God's kingdom forever. That's a promise to David. And David's name will be great, as great as Abraham's name. So you could say Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David. David has a promise on that level of Abraham. And so David knows this. Shimei can say what he wants. Whatever dumb thoughts are um, bouncing around in David's head, whatever other people are saying about David, he doesn't have to go by those words. He can go by the Davidic covenant that God gave him, that God is for him and not against him. And so David reflects on this theologically, and he says certain things about God. This is why you need to know theology about who God is. God is a what to David? In verse 3, he's a shield around him. He's a shield around him. Now, a shield around him? Now, I'm... Our kids are older now. At my, my youngest is at four years old, so we're past, long past the baby stage of things. And uh, now that we have a lot of young moms in our church, you know, when they're, when they're breastfeeding, they have a, a hider that, that really goes 360 degrees. That didn't happen in our day <laughs> with our kids. I was always having to watch Francis' back and make sure that, you know, it's not turning and the kid doesn't just, you know, do stuff. Because now, like, when our, when our sisters here in the church have it, it really covers their whole all around, 360 degrees, which is great. You don't have to worry about anything. Whereas um, when we had our five kids, it wasn't like that. It was just on the front. So um, it's nice to have something that goes around all the way. It gives you a peace of mind, right? And there are no shields. I mean, think about shields in war. The shield that David has, or that, that soldiers had, was a shield, and it was only covering a certain part of your body, and it was usually in front of you. You had to hold the shield. And so you always had to watch your back, your sides, because your shield was not protecting you completely. But what is Yahweh to David? What kind of shield? A shield where? Around him. His back, his sides, his front, everywhere around, who's protecting him? Yahweh is protecting him. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and David is protecting David. So David has no worries but full confidence that he's covered. God is not a partial shield to David. Hey, David, I'll protect this much, but you got to do this much, and I'll only protect this much of your life. It's not a partial protection. It's not partial coverage. God is a shield around David. He protects David. Not only is he a shield around him so David can rest peacefully, but look at verse three. He's also David's glory. What does it mean that he's David's glory? Yahweh, you're my glory. You're my reputation. You're my identity. I find my identity in you. My honor, my reputation, my significance is God himself. It doesn't matter what people think. It doesn't matter what Shimei thinks. It doesn't matter what Israel thinks. Because all Israel thinks who should be king right now. Not David, but who? Absalom. And so David's like, you know what? My glory is not even the reputation I have with my 12,000 soldiers, with my whole nation. That's not where my reputation comes from. My glory is in you, Yahweh. You are my glory. You're my joy. You're my treasure. It doesn't matter what other people think about me. You're my glory. Not my status. My status is you. Regardless of what other people say. This frees you from fearing others, right? The fear of man. I wonder what my church thinks of me. 
I wonder what my family members think of me. I wonder what my neighbors and coworkers think of me, what my boss thinks of me. When God is your glory, you don't need glory from anyone else. You're secure in your trial, in your trouble, in your burden, in the pressures that you're in. This is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, one of my favorite verses. This is what the Lord says. The wise person should not boast in his wisdom. The strong should not boast in his strength. The wealthy should not boast in his wealth. But the one who boasts should boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, showing faithful love, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. Thus says the Lord. David's boast was not in money, it was not in physical strength, it was not in his looks, it was not in his wisdom, it was not in his crew, it was not in his kingly status. God was his glory. Brothers and sisters, remind each other of your gospel identity. Some of you, um, as, as a church family, let's remind each other of our gospel identity. Some of you this week, I text some of you when I was praying for you that day, um, I text you this verse. If I was texting you on, I think, Friday, I was looking at, I was doing the bulletin here. It says, Body of Christ. And I started texting some of you saying, hey, you're going to have a great day today. You know why? Because God, uh, because you're the body of Christ. Because God united us to Jesus, our head. We are the body of, of Christ. You are the body of Christ. That's your identity. Through our head's grace and generosity, we have his resources to joyfully and effectively share life and share Jesus. Some of you think, think I, I don't have the resources. I can't effectively share life and share Jesus with my coworkers today. Well, guess what? You are the body of Christ. Do you know why? Who's your head? If you're the body, who's, the, who's our head? Christ is our head. He's our glory. We find our identity in Jesus. So one way you could apply this is remind each other, take these. We have like seven of these that change every Sunday. It's not a waste of words. Take these identity statements and use them on each other. Gospelize each other through the gospel identities. Not only is God David's shield and David's glory, he's the one who lifts up David's head in verse three. You're the one who lifts up my head. What does it mean to lift up David's head? Well, when you're downcast and you're discouraged, where do you put your head? You put your head what? Put your head down, right? You're down, you're discouraged, you're distraught, and you put your head down. And David is saying, Yahweh, you lift my head up. You encourage me. You strengthen me to go on and to go forward so that I can basically pray theologically that you're the one who lifts me up. He encourages David and he encourages discouraged people like you. Now, because David's king, there could be a secondary and maybe even a kingly definition of lifting up my head, which means exalting God's king in victory over his enemies. You see that in Psalm 27, 6 and Psalm 110, 7. Lifting his head means exalting his king in victory over enemies. And that's what David's saying. I got enemies right now. I'm losing, my, my army is terrible and small, and their army is huge, and all the momentum is on his side, but you're the one who lifts my head. You're the one who encourages me. You're the one who's gonna give me victory over my enemies. For us, we're not Davidic kings. Well, you might be, but we're not Davidic kings directly. And this means that God, um, how do we know that God gives us the victory? I mean, God promises David the victory. Does God promise us victory? He does. In, Roman, in Revelation 2 and 3, it says, to the one who conquers, I will give the tree of life. To the one who conquers, I will give a white stone. To the one who conquers, I'll give um, a, a place to sit beside me on my throne and we'll reign together. Christians are conquerors. Christians are victorious. Christians defeat their enemies. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says this, everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So who conquers the world? Those who believe in Christ. God will give us the victory the way he's given David the victory. God will lift up our head the way he's lifted up David's head. And let's, let's look at one more thing that God does here. I cry out to Yahweh. There's the name again. I cry out to Yahweh. And what does God do when we, when we pray? When David prays, what does God do? He answers David. God does not ignore you. He answers you. God responds to your prayers. He hears your prayers. He hears our prayers for each other. It's not a waste of time for you to pray through the members list. When you get that email and it's a reminder to pray through the members list, it's not a waste of time to take 30 seconds, 15 seconds to pray a short prayer for each person. God hears. God responds. Some of you sent out emails this week asking for prayer. God hears. God answers. God responds. 
And where does he respond from? His holy mountain. What is his holy mountain? We sang it. Jerusalem. We sang the song Jerusalem. God answers from his holy mountain, Jerusalem. Why does God answer from Jerusalem? What's so special about Jerusalem? At least for David, what was in Jerusalem? The Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the very presence of God on earth. And the Ark of the Covenant was in a tent, and that tent is called a tabernacle. So David says, God, I'm leaving Jerusalem. I'm kicked out of my city. I'm kicked out of my palace because my son wants to kill me. And even though I'm on the run, I'm going to pray to you, and you're going to answer me from where? From, from the holy mountain in Jerusalem. And who's there? Absalom is there. Even where my son is, my enemy, even from there, you're going to hear and you're going to respond to me because you're for me and not against me. Why, why is God there with the Ark of the Covenant? Is it because it's a magic box? It, it seemed that way, very supernatural in some ways. But why is God's presence there? Because the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant is where they worshiped God. And priests would teach God's word from the tabernacle and temple. And then people would make sacrifices at the tabernacle and temple. And the priest would come and take the blood once a year into the Holy of Holies. And he would sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant where God was. God lived on earth. Where did God live on earth? He lived on his holy mountain. He lived in the tabernacle. He lived in the Holy of Holies. And so if you pray to God, God was not just in heaven God was on earth. God is on earth. And so when you pray to God, you're not praying only to God in heaven, you're praying to God on earth. And he answers from earth through the sacrifices. Now, why is Jerusalem so significant? Because this holy mountain was the mountain where the temple would be built. David's son Solomon would build a temple there and the sacrifices would would be there. And so God would answer from the temple. But guess what? The temple was destroyed. So will God still answer from his holy mountain? Well, after the temple was destroyed, it was rebuilt, and then Jesus steps on the scene, and he kicks everyone out of the temple because they're, they're selling and they're greedy, right? They're taking money. So this temple is useless. Jesus says, my father's house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You're making it useless. And so Dave, uh, Jesus kicks people out of the temple two different times. Will God answer now from his holy mountain? Well, maybe not. So what else happens on that holy mountain? Well, after the second time Jesus kicked people out of that temple on a Monday and Tuesday. He held down the temple on a Monday and Tuesday. On that Friday, he was hanging from a cross on the holy mountain in Jerusalem, dying for sinners. And then he would be buried on that holy mountain in Jerusalem. And on the third day, he would what? Rise from the dead so that everyone who prays to God, when the pressures press in on you, and are about to crush you, pray to the God who will see you through, and he will answer from where? From Jerusalem, because that's where Jesus died and rose. Now, that, that physical Jerusalem is not the place anymore. There's a heavenly Jerusalem where Christ is, so we pray to God in Christ, and God answers because of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, let me briefly tell you what the gospel is. This is the most important message you'll hear. So if you're not a Christian, listen up. God is opposed to us because we're sinners. God made us to enjoy him, but we have rejected God, so God will judge us in our sins. But God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins and rise from the dead so that if you would repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ, he would save you from your sins. And you'd be forgiven of your sins. God would live in you, and he would answer your prayers. He would be for you and not against you for the rest of your eternity because of Christ. So if you're not a Christian, call on Jesus to save you. And he'll save you from your sins and answer you from his holy mountain. Well, one day that holy mountain will be a new heavens and a new earth, the new Jerusalem. So what should we do? Look to Christ for grace. Look to the, and where's the, where's the temple today? Where is God on earth today? Not in Jerusalem per se, but where is he now? In the church, in the sanctuary. And not the sanctuary, the building. Who's the sanctuary? The church, the covenant community, the saints of God, the local church is where God dwells today. So guess what? When you pray, where does God answer to you? Where does God answer you? From his holy mountain. And where's this holy place today? The church. So pray with your church. Pray on Sundays with your church. And look to God to answer you from his word, from his church speaking to you. God is on earth today. He's actually here in this room today. God has set foot here in a special presence type of way that is nowhere else on earth except in his local churches gathered. So look to Christ for grace. Look to the cross for grace. Look to Christ embodied in the body of Christ, the church, for grace. 
Look to the new earth to come. Pray thoughtfully, theologically, looking to Christ in the past, on the cross, in the present here on the, in this church, and in the future when Christ returns. When the pressure is so strong, it can be hard to pray thoughtfully. So open your Bible, pray to God in light of his word. Listen to the prayers of praise that we, we pray here as a church. Use the catechism to, to learn about God. We have a Baptist catechism, our church catechism here that we use to train our kids to know doctrine and theology. Use our confession of faith. We have a church confession of faith that we use to recite theology. Use that to learn about God. Do you know what our, what our Baptist catechism says about who God is or what God is? So I'll give you two. One of the questions is, who is God? And the answer is, God is the Father, loving and giving life to His Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. God is a personal community of love. Another question we teach our kids is, what is God? God, um, God is a spirit, triune, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, holiness, power, justice, goodness, and truth. That's what God is. If you know what God is, then you can pray that back to God when you're in trials, right? When David's in trial, what is he saying? God, you're my what? You're my shield. You're my glory. You're, 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 you surround me. David prays theologically because he has theology in his head. He knows the Bible. He's heard the Bible. He meditates on the Bible. And so if you're going to pray thoughtfully in your trials, you need to know theology. You need to know what God's word teaches. So use these resources as a church. If you're a child, children, learn as much about God as you can now. It might not seem like a big deal to you now, but ask the older people. They wish they knew more of God when they were little for what they're living with today. Learn as much about God as you can now because you will have trials and God will be there with you. God answers from his holy mountain. To the discouraged, God hears you. He answers you. God lifts up the lowly. He encourages the discouraged. He strengthens the weak. He establishes the stumbling. He softens the hard-hearted. He pushes for breakthroughs among those who feel stuck. Is that you? God is your answer. So pray to God thoughtfully. Pray to God theologically. When opposition weighs down on you, pray to God who will see you through. Pray, th pray realistically. Pray theologically. Thirdly, pray confidently. Look at verses 5 and 6. Pray confidently. It says here in verse 5, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. So what is David saying? I get good what? I get good sleep. When you have trials pressing in on you, and you have burdens, and you have anxiety, and you have stress, sometimes it's hard to what? It's hard to sleep. It's hard to get good sleep. Due to a lack of confidence in God, that can cause stress, and that can hurt our sleep. David says, I sleep like a baby. I'm on the run. My son wants to kill me. The whole nation's against me. I'm burdened. Notice he was praying first realistically, then he's praying thoughtfully, and now he's praying confidently. You can see David gaining steam, right? He's gaining some momentum as he's thinking and praying. He's getting more encouragement and strength. And now he's saying, I sleep like a baby. I sleep, I lie down, I take a nap, I wake up. One website says, anxiety, stress, and depression are some of the most common causes of chronic insomnia. Having difficulty sleeping can also make anxiety, stress, and depression symptoms worse. Other common emotional and psychological causes include anger, worry, and grief. So sleeplessness can be caused by anxiety and stress and grief. And then when you can't sleep, guess what happens? Your anxiety and depression gets what? It gets worse, which means your sleeping gets worse, and then your causes get worse, and then your sleeping gets worse, and you spiral out in sleeplessness. So some people drink away sorrows, get drunk. Michael Jackson had a really hard time sleeping, and it got really bad with the measures he used. Why can David sleep like a baby? Verse 5. I lie down and sleep. I wake again. Why? Why? Because the Lord what? The Lord sustains him. God is actively working. God is actively sustaining. God never stops working for you. Brothers and sisters, you need to get this because you don't believe this. I said it. You might nod yes, but you don't get it. God never stops working in you. Never. God is always actively working on you. Just because you don't feel it doesn't mean he's not working on you. And when you believe he's not working on you is when you get unnecessarily discouraged. And you don't pray to God. You don't pray confidently in God. You pray, or maybe you don't pray at all, or you pray with large measures of doubt. But guess what? If you're struggling with faith, if you're struggling, who's helping you struggle? 
Why is there even a struggle? Because who's working in you? God is working in you. God is sustaining you. Jeremiah 32, 40 and 41, God promised I will make a permanent covenant with them, and that's in Christ. I will never turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will never again, so that so they will never again turn away from me. I will take delight in them to do what is good for them with all my heart and mind. I will faithfully plant them in this land. God works for you all the time. Even when you're sinning, if you're a Christian, he's working for you. So pray confidently in him. David says, look on in verse six, I will not be afraid of of what? I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. They want to kill me. They want to murder me. They want to make my son king. I will not be afraid of them. Why? Because God sustains him. The Lord is on his side. If God is on your side, it doesn't matter who's against you, right? If God's against you, it doesn't matter who's for you, right? If God is on your side, it doesn't matter who is against you. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is 2 Kings chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, I'll just tell it to you. 2 Kings 6, verses 13 to 18, Elisha is, um, so the king of Aram is attacking Israel, and he wants to do all of these sneak attacks on Israel to keep taking out their, their, their armies or their, their uh, battalions. And every time he's about to send some of his soldiers on a secret mission, Elisha would say, he would say, send a message to the king. He's going to attack the city at this time. And then they would be ready to defend. When they attacked with their sneak attack, they would lose. Aram would lose. They'd go to another place. Every time they're about to go somewhere, Elisha already knew. And so the king of Aram was saying, who is a spy here? Who's, who's telling the king? We need to kill the spy. There's a spy in my, in my, among my people. And they would say, no, there's no spy. Elisha, the man of God, can hear everything you're saying, even in his bedroom, or even in your bedroom. Even what you say in your bedroom, Elisha can know. So then um, he said, well, then let's kill Elisha. Well, he's in Dothan. All right, send, send, send all of our, our army to, to Dothan and let's go kill, or Dothan, let's go kill Elisha. So Elisha's there in his little house with his servant, and the army comes. On the hills around, you see chariots and soldiers everywhere. And um, Elisha is in his house, Elisha's servant goes outside to go to the bathroom because you didn't have bathroom inside in your house. Probably, it's in the morning. Elisha gets up in the morning. First thing you do in the morning is you go to the bathroom. So Elisha's servant gets up in the morning. He goes out. He's relieving himself, maybe wiping the eye boogers out of his eye. And he looks up and what does he see? Soldiers. He starts turning around and what does he see everywhere? He sees soldiers everywhere. And so what does he do? He goes back inside and he says, he's panicking now and he's like, Master, there's an army out there. They're going to kill us. And Elisha's just totally calm. Like, what? Yeah, don't worry about it. And Elisha's like, no. He's like, no, there's an army outside. And so maybe he pulls Elisha outside. And so Elisha's there. Um, the servant's there. He's like, look, there's an army here. They're going to kill us. And Elisha says, and I'll quote the text. He says, don't be afraid. For those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. <laughs> the servant's looking around like, it's just me and you, dude. Like, this is not, like, I don't know, your, your math is off just a little bit, right? And so then Elisha says, Lord, please open his eyes. And God opens the eyes of the servant, and he looks around, and the armies of the living God, the angels, are all around, all around that army. And so Elisha is not scared. He has no fear because there's an army all around and then the army, and then God doesn't even use the army. The army starts coming in on Elisha, and then Elisha just very calmly prays, God, blind their eyes. Please blind their eyes. And they all get blind, the whole army. The, the angels don't even do anything. It's a, he just prays a prayer for them to be blind, and now the, the whole army comes to attack Elisha, and they're all blinded. And then Elisha blesses them and, and ministers to them and takes them to the king and then sends them back home. That, that, that's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. But the point here is... Um, what was Elisha scared? Was he afraid of thousands? Why was he not afraid of thousands? Who was on his side? The Lord was on his side. And if God is on your side, it doesn't matter who's against you. Even yourself, if you're your biggest enemy, you're fighting within, even if you're against yourself, it doesn't matter. God is on your side. And so you don't have to be scared. You don't have to fear thousands of people against you. God sustains you in Christ. So find confidence in the God who sustains you. 
If God is for us, who can be against us, right? When opposition weighs down on you, pray to God who will see you through. So pray realistically, pray theologically, pray confidently because God is for you. Lastly, number four, fourth point, pray boldly. Verses seven and eight, pray boldly. What's, now here you get David's prayer request. He hasn't had a prayer request yet, actually, in the whole thing. It's just all prayers of truth. But here's his prayer request, verse seven. It's, it's one prayer request said two ways. What's the prayer request? In verse seven, what is the prayer request? Rise up. And the other prayer request is what? Save me. Now, these are two sides of the same coin. Rise up in, in the Hebrew is the same word. Rise is the same word in verse seven as attack in verse one. There are many who rise up against me. There are many who attack me. But guess what, God? My prayer is that you would rise up and attack who? Attack them. Just like Elisha. God is on my side against them. God, you're on my side. Rise up against them. So it's two prayer requests. Rise up and attack my enemies. And then what, what, is, what does David want for himself? Save me. So save me and judge my enemies. Defeat the enemy and deliver me from them in saving me. It's just the two sides of the same coin. One's a positive prayer request, save me. One's a negative prayer request, go attack them. Rise up against them. And that's David's prayer request. And notice he's again praying to Yahweh, the covenant God. Deliver me from my enemies. And he says, my God, save me, my God. Deliver me. Yeah, save me, my God. Why can David pray this boldly? The reason is in the second part of verse seven. In your translation, it should have the word because there or for. Why, why, rise up, Yahweh, save me, my God, why? Because you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the, salvation, you break the teeth of the wicked, salvation belongs to the Lord. Here's the reason why David can pray so boldly. Because God will judge his enemies and God will save his people. That's why you can pray boldly. God has promised judgment on his enemies and salvation for his people. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Now what is judgment, how is judgment described here? You strike all my enemies on the cheek. So imagine getting hit in the face. So there's a strike on the cheek of the enemies, but the strike is so strong. Read the next, next phrase. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. That's a pretty strong hit, right? I mean, how hard do you have to get hit? To, 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 or how hard do you have to hit someone to break their teeth, to shatter their teeth? That's a really hard hit. That's a devastating blow. That's judgment. So David is praying, God, deliver me. Rise up against my enemies because you are the God who breaks their, you break their teeth. You do them in. God alone saves. God alone judges. And so David prays, he prays boldly because he knows that God will save him. And then look at verse 8, the end of verse 8. Here's a blessing prayer. May your blessing be on who? beyond your people. And what is that blessing? It's the blessing, the ironic blessing, the blessing that God promised Abraham to reverse the curse on God's people, right? God's sinner saving, curse reversing rule. But not only is it the blessing of Genesis 12 that God promised he'd bless Abraham and, his, and the great nation and his people and all the families of the earth, it's the blessing of, that Aaron gives to the people of Israel in Numbers 6, 24 through 26. What is that blessing? May the Lord bless you and what? Keep you or protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look on you with favor and give you peace. When God's face is shining on you, when the Lord is for you and he's blessing you and protecting you, when he's looking on you with favor and he's giving you, your, he's giving you his peace, his shalom, you can pray boldly. You can pray confidently. You can pray realistically. You can pray thoughtfully. Because God is for you and not against you. God's blessing is on you. Now, David prays boldly and confidently that God would save him from his enemies and pour out his blessing, and he trusts even the Davidic promise earlier. But let's not forget who David is. Who is David? What did David do? David is getting this blessing, this face shining on him, this favor for him, this protection against his teeth being shattered by the enemy. He gets this protection. Why? I mean, despite the fact that after he got the Davidic covenant, he was negligent. He didn't go to war, right? He committed, he committed sexual assault and rape. He conspired to murder the husband that, of, the, of the woman he abused. He did not repent for over a year of unrepentance, not confessing his sin for over a year. 
And then, after he was forgiven, he was a negligent and unjustly passive father to his children. As, one of his, as there was, there was uh, uh, sexual assault and, and murder even among his children. And David was not just and righteous as a father in disciplining his kids. And David gets salvation? David deserves blessing? He's not the father of the year. He gets blessing, he gets God's favor on him, he gets protection, he gets a shield, he gets glory. He gets all of this, the lifting up of his head, he gets constant, constant sustenance from the Lord. He doesn't get judgment, why not? Why doesn't God rise up against David and strike him on the cheek and break all of David's teeth? Why not judge David? He's clearly a sinner. Because God would judge someone else. God would judge another king. He would judge another king on David's throne. He would judge another Davidic king. That's why he doesn't judge David. God would rise up against another king. God would strike him on the cheek and God would break all of his teeth, figuratively speaking, and exhaust the full wrath and fury of judgment on this Davidic king. He'd be hanging on a cross and it would say right on top of him, when he's hanging on the cross, it says, the king of the Jews. And that king, God would break his teeth. That king, God would judge. That king, God would turn his face away. That king, God would withdraw his favor from. That king, God would abandon and forsake for sins. Not for his sins, for David's sins. For your sins. For my sins. God would curse him and withhold the Abrahamic blessing. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree and God would curse the Davidic king, his son. He would turn his face away from him so that he wouldn't have to turn his face away from you and from David. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will God not also with him graciously give us everything we need? All the protection, all the peace, all the sleep we need, all the escape from stress that we need and from the pressures to sin and to give up and give in. God will give us everything. He gave you Jesus, right? He'll give you everything. He'll give us all things in Christ. Because, Christ, because of Christ, we can know that God is for us, not against us. And so we sing songs like God is for us, where it sings, where the song goes, we won't fear the battle, we won't fear the night. We will walk the valley with you by our side. You will go before us. You will lead the way. We have found our refuge. Only you can save. Sing with joy now. Our God is for us. The Father's love is a strong and mighty fortress. Raise your voice now. No love is greater. Who can stand against us if our God is for us? We're going to sing that tonight. So I invite you to come and sing that this evening with us in our evening service. But here's the application. Ask boldly. Ask boldly for God to rise up and fight for you. I'm, I'm praying about my sinful battling of my own heart and negligence and laziness and saying, God, rise up. Destroy. Destroy my fleshly desires. Destroy my sin. Destroy the old PJ. Help me as the spirit and flesh wage war against each other, according to Galatians 5. Ask God to boldly save you, defeating Satan, sin, death, self-centeredness, your old self, your sinful self. Ask God to save you from the brokenness of this world that presses in on you and your loved ones. When opposition weighs down on you, pray to God who will see you through. Pray realistically, pray theologically, pray confidently, pray boldly. Name your trial specifically and think about God as you pray. Here's my final call to you. Here's one action step that you can do. Share the opposition that's weighing you down with others in this church. Pick one person and share one opposition that's really weighing heavy on your heart. Whether it's spiritual forces, whether it's another person or people, be careful not to gossip about people when you do that, by the way. So don't start gossiping and telling other people's sins as you share your burden. But whether it's other people, whether it's yourself, as I've been sharing with you throughout the sermon, or whether it's the broken situation you're in, share your burden with someone around you and then pray together. Pray realistically. Pray theologically, pray confidently, and pray boldly.
If you, would, if you won't share your opposition weighing you down, you'll believe mocking half-truths in your head or from other mockers. You'll be discouraged to give up, and you'll be crushed under the opposition that's weighing you down. But if you share your burdens with God's people and go to God together in prayer, you will know God's truth. You'll have peace and encouragement that you need to move forward with the Lord and not give up or give in. When opposition weighs down on you, pray to God who will see you through. Let's pray. Father, we have all kinds of burdens crushing us, and a lot of it's our own fault, our own sin, just like David. We admit these things to you. We praise you that you're our shield, our glory, that you protect us all around, that you lift up our heads. We praise you that you're for us and not against us, that you answer us when we pray from your holy mountain. We pray that you'll see us through. Save us. Deliver us. Rise up against our enemies. Rise up against sin. Rise up against Satan. Rise up against brokenness. And help us to endure faithfully to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.